Good afternoon. I want to welcome you to the fourth episode of Not a Square Inch, the new podcast for Hope Prison Ministries. And I'm very pleased that I have my wife joining me this afternoon. So uh, we were going we're gonna to get started now, and we're going to continue our discussion about economics. And this week in particular, we're going to talk about welfare from a biblical perspective. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This is Not a Square Inch, the new podcast of Hope Prison Ministries. The goal is to help you see all of life through the lens of Scripture. To learn more, please visit us at notasquareinch.org. All right. Thanks for joining us again on this podcast. And we're going to talk about welfare from a biblical perspective. And again, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the program, my wife, Barbara, is here with me. Barbara, you want to greet our listeners? Hello and good afternoon. Beautiful, glorious day. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining me this afternoon, honey. And uh, we want to thank our listeners and we've had some great feedback. So we're going to go ahead and get started. The first thing I want to do is we want to talk about, as I said, welfare from a biblical perspective. And I think one of the greatest models of this uh, is in the book of Ruth. Years ago, I read a book, a collection of essays from Reformed Christian scholars that was called Welfare Reformed. One of the essays in there was by a man named George Grant, who, with whom some of you may be familiar. And George based his essay on the book of Ruth, and he called it, uh, I believe it was called A Biblical View of Welfare or Charity in that collection of essays. But it has some really helpful things, something that we've tried to model Hope Prison Ministries after. We get a lot of people that come to us, and even today, if you're maybe you've gone to a gas station and somebody's walked up and asked you for money, or maybe you've been somewhere and somebody's asked you for a ride or for shelter or whatever, and sometimes it's hard to know how they're going to use those things and what they're going to do with those things, and you question whether or not you have a responsibility to help those people. I do think we have a responsibility if we're able to try to help people, but we want to do it in a wise, biblical way. One of the things that I told my wife early on is when people ask me, for example, if they say I want food, I will actually say to them, hey, yeah, I'll be happy to get you a meal. And you would be surprised the number of people who have said to me, oh, no, that's okay. What I really wanted was money. I'm not kidding you. It's actually happened to me numerous times. There have been other times when I've been about to put gas in a tank and somebody would say to me uh, they wanted gas in their car. And I'd say, oh, sure, let me go fill up your tank for you. And just earlier, my wife was reminding me about the time we did that once before. And the guy was like, no, what I really wanted was the money. He didn't even have his car with him. One time I met a lady and she was telling me she needed money to cover the cost of a hotel room for her and her kids. And I said, okay, so if we get in the car right now and go to your hotel room, your kids are there. Oh, no, actually, they're living with my mom and I'm the only one in the hotel room. Oh, I see. So she wasn't really honest about that. So one way that you can really be charitable and be godly, but try not to do it in a way that is enabling wrong, is to actually just take the time to find out more about their story and ask them questions and make a decision then as to whether or not you want to actually give to somebody. Certainly you want to be charitable. And the Bible actually had a system of welfare in place, and that's what you see in the book of Ruth, expounded in a really wonderful way. Ruth, of course, you'll remember, was the daughter of Naomi, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, and Ruth's husband had passed away. 
and Ruth was going to be left alone, basically, and Naomi was going to be left alone, and Naomi says, go back where you can find husbands, and Ruth was like, no, I, I don't want to go. I don't want to leave you, and in fact, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, uh, let me go there real quick. In Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, this is what Ruth said to her, and actually, it's a really beautiful passage that's been used in weddings and countless other occasions. It actually says in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That was Ruth's pledge to her mother-in-law, Naomi, which was a really beautiful thing for her to be willing to give up so much, she thought, to be able to be there with her mother-in-law. And even her mother-in-law continued to try to encourage her daughter-in-laws to go back. But she, the daughter-in-laws, especially Ruth in particular, would not go back. She stayed, and she stayed the course. So the first thing that you see right away is one of the biblical concepts of charity is faith. You want people who are, want to follow Christ. And so one of the things that we ask people when they want to come to Hope Prison Ministries and they want to get help, right away I ask them, are you a Christian? Have you ever thought about being a Christian? How did you become a Christian? I want to know more about their faith. I had a young man ask me once, he said, Chandler, I don't understand why I have to be a Christian in order to get help from you. And I said, you don't have to be a Christian to get help from us. You could go to your atheist buddies. And then I kind of laughed and said, oh, wait a minute. Atheists don't do this. I mean, how many halfway houses do you know that are run by atheists? How many Christian, how many hospitals and charities and countless other things would this world have? D. James Kennedy wrote a book many, many years ago called Whatever Happened to Jesus? Uh, whatever would happen if Jesus had not been born? Whatever happened? What, what would have happened if Jesus had not been born? I think is the correct title. And we'll look that up and we'll have it on our podcast page for you. But the idea is he went through and he traced throughout history all of the incredible things that would not be here if it had not been for Christians. Think about it. Most of our Ivy League schools, the schools of Harvard and Yale and Princeton, they were all originally started as Christian colleges. Isn't that neat, honey? Absolutely. Think about the hospitals. Your family have been Methodist for years before we got married and Methodists have been responsible for starting Methodist health systems and and children's homes, children's homes. Boys absolutely. Homes. Waco yes. Methodist home, Waco Methodist Boys Ranch that I was in when I was growing up as a kid. I mean, all those different things that the children's homes, the hospitals, the charities. Think about it. Many, many of these things would not even be here if it wasn't for Christians practicing and living out their faith. So when you think about biblical charity, one of the most important things is to have a, a, a biblical welfare that's based on faith. We want people to want to be, they, they're not going to be perfect. They're not going to come to us with everything in order. And nobody does, but we want them to have at least an idea or a desire to be living for Christ. That is certainly a big part of any kind of biblical charity. Would you agree with that, honey? Yes. And the church, the, another reason my husband's so adamant about 
the faith is the church and the body of believers are there to help and support each other. And so that faith circle is where you reach out and you have the heart to give as Christ gave to us to give to others. So the body of believers is what will help spread that uh, welfare to others. And then you wouldn't need the welfare state system. There we go. Absolutely. You know, not long ago, we had a very precious friend of ours, and maybe somebody will listen to this that knew Ken McCarty. Ken was one of the most charitable men uh, I've ever known. It was a tremendous godly man and raised a wonderful godly family, uh, two wonderful boys, Stephen and David, and taught them the value of biblical charity and other things. But I remember at the funeral for Ken McCarty, one of the things that uh, I believe it was David said, the older son said regarding his father, was that his dad had taught him that he wanted him to never feel like there was anything he would need that would be outside the circle of protection of being in Christ. He wanted David to stay in Christ which he called, he referred to as the circle of protection. And so what we want when we look at people who want to come to our program and be a part of Hope Prison Ministries, one of the things that we're looking for are people who want to be in the circle of protection, in the circle of Christ. Because if they don't want to do that, if they want to continue living their own way, you know, um, Mr. Miyagi, back in Karate Kid, I'll never forget, he told Dan, he told Danielson, he says, Danielson, walk left side road, okay. Walk right side road, okay. Walk middle of the road, pretty soon, squish, just like grape. And I've never forgotten that line from the movie, and I think it's funny, but it also illustrates a very important point. If you're, you know, either you're going to be in Christ or you're going to be out of Christ. If you're in Christ, okay. But if you get outside of Christ, squish just like grape what happens to somebody outside of christ when we're doing the things that we do when i was committing the sins i was committing and i found myself in prison when you know you walk when you're using drugs and you're not living the life that you should for christ when you're doing all of these different things that you're doing and you're not doing what you should be doing it's not anyone's fault that certain bad things happen to you uh, i remember Really, and you know, bad things, don't get me wrong, bad things can happen to Christians too, and they do all the time. But then when that happens, when something happens to a Christian, if they're in Christ, they have Christ, they have the Holy Spirit, they have a song in the night, they have joy that comes in the morning, they have the body of Christ around them to keep and encourage them. I'm sure that uh, the McCarty family could tell you about the tremendous outpouring of love that they received from the body of Christ with the loss of their father. Many people don't experience that. They don't experience that because they're not in Christ. Their families are not in Christ. Their generations are not in Christ. But when you're in Christ, you have the protection and the outpouring of love that comes from the body of Christ. It's so significant. You know, I grew up in boys' homes. My dad died when I was nine in an alcohol-related car accident. My mom was a schizophrenic, and I was placed in boys' homes. And I only got a family when I became a Christian and became part of the body of Christ. That was really the first time I'd ever had a functional family. So being a part of the community of faith, being a part of the body of Christ, you're under, you're under that umbrella of Christ, the protection of Christ that shields you from so much else that goes on in this world. My wife has experienced much tragedy in her life, and maybe at some point she'll share that with you, but she can tell you, she can attest to you that even through all of the tragedy that she's experienced, she's always 
always felt like she's been under the umbrella of Christ and had the protection of Christ. Would you agree with that, honey? Absolutely. It makes you where you have a joy no matter what. Our response, people look at Christians and how they respond, and we all go through tragedies. But the difference is the Christian will be content and know not not really blame God, just know that for whatever purpose and for whatever reason, we may not know now, but maybe later. But that, as my husband said, protection, I like that circle of protection, is there. And we rest content in our rock, our Savior, our mighty God. Here's a brief announcement. Hopeafterprison.com We help locate transitional housing for those being released from prison, regardless of their crime. And when permitted, we connect those being released with one or more mentors from the local church. To learn more, please visit HopeAfterPrison.com. Okay, we're back now, and uh, we really appreciate my wife again being on the program with us and getting back to just thinking about the tremendous uh, outpouring and blessing of being in Christ and being part of a community of faith. You know, I began studying biblical counseling years ago and one of the authors, Jay Adams, uh, one of his books, he made the comment, he said, you know, people would come up to him and they would say, well, Jay, you know, we appreciate your approach to biblical counseling, but what about those who don't believe the word of God? What about those who don't have the same truth or want to follow the same ways that we do? Don't you think that a secular psychologist is doing good uh, who may not be a Christian, but is helping someone, for example, stop drinking or stop abusing their wife or whatever? And he said that, you know, those changes are good. There's no doubt about it. But you have to remember that when when somebody is doing those things and we help them stop doing those things without Christ, he asked the same question that Jesus asked. What does it profit if a man gain the world and lose his soul? Those aren't changes that are going to make a difference eternally. He's still going to stand before a holy God one day and have to give an account. And sometimes we have to let people come to the end of themselves. Sometimes we have to let them fall into their own trap. Like, for example, go to prison, be punished by the judicial system. You know, the Bible says in Romans 13 that the civil authority exists to be terrors of God against those who practice sin and to be protectors of those who do good. So sometimes we have to let people fall. We have to let them experience the hardship of their sin. We have to let them experience those things because if they don't, they may not come to the end of themselves. And we could actually find ourselves standing between us and the gospel. We could actually find ourselves standing between us and that person coming to the end of themselves. So it's very important that we we make sure that we're not doing anything when these people come up to us and they ask us for help and they say they they need this, they need that. I always want to offer, you know, I, I saw a young man not long ago at a truck stop and he was standing on a street corner and I had gone up to him and I said, listen, you know, I could certainly give you five bucks and you'd eat for a day, but what if I could offer you a chance to come out of this altogether? What if I could offer you a program that would help you get your life back on track and stop living this way? And he said, oh, that'd be great. I gave him a business card, never heard from him. 
He never, you know, there are people, they don't want to continue the lifestyle. They don't want to quit the lifestyle they're in. They just want to continue in that lifestyle. And so for me to just hand him five bucks, I'd have just been throwing money away. I'd have been doing something that would have stopped him from coming to the end of himself. So there is a very important part to play. We want people to be in the faith. We want them to be seeking Christ. And, you know, they don't necessarily even have to. I'll, I've got people, we've taken some in that were... I took one young man in who was a professing atheist. We took him in and we let him stay with us and we tried to be a light to him. We put as much gospel in front of him as we could. He was a very respectful man. He was probably one of the best men we've ever had in our program in many ways. He did everything he said he was going to do for us and he studied what he was going to study. Um, he was never disrespectful to anybody. We He knew going in that it was a Christian program, and we knew he was an atheist, but he maintained a very high level of respect. As a matter of fact, to this day, that young man still gives to this ministry on a weekly basis. His family still gives to this ministry on a weekly basis. And he's not a Christian, but he wants to give back to people who had given to him. So that's really, it's important that we try, though, to help those who are of the faith. And if they're not of the faith, we try to help them bring them in. But if somebody just gives evidence that they're going to continue to live an ungodly lifestyle and they're going to continue to live in a sinful manner, then we don't need to be continuing to enable that. We need to do what we can to try to help them come to the end of themselves so that they can come to know Christ. So faith is an extremely important part of biblical charity. And we saw that in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Now, if we scroll down a little further to Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see the second part of biblical charity, and that is family. So you've heard the expression, charity begins at home. Well, that is absolutely the way it should be. And you see that in the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So right away, we see that biblical charity begins at home. It begins with the family. So one of the things we do at Hope Prison Ministries, we certainly try to raise funds from the community. And by the way, we need your support. You can certainly go online and give securely anytime at www.hopeprisonministries.org or visit hopegivesback.com, which you've heard on some of our ads, hopegivesback.com. Remember, when you give to Hope, Hope Gives Back. But one of the most important things of biblical charity is family, and family needs to be the first place. So when someone applies to come to Hope Prison Ministries, the first question I ask them is, do you have any family who are going to help pay the bill? Because it costs to do what we do. There are houses, rent to be paid, food that has to be bought, utilities that have to be paid, bus passes, cell phones. The list is endless. Recently, dental work to the tune of $4,300 dental work for a couple of guys. It's insane the amount of money that it costs to help the people that we help. It's absolutely unbelievable. And so we need to be able to do those things for those people that come to us who are under our care. But the very first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the church, hey, 
uh, I'm going to ask the family first. I'm going to say, family, mom, dad, brother, sister, uncle, cousin, whatever, can you help us help your loved one? That's something that's really important. We just recently set up the website, inmatementors.com. One of the things that I do is I send books into people in prison and I write them and I accept their collect phone calls and we do all of that. And recently we started inmatementors.com to ask people to help us help their loved one. So that's very important. Charity begins at home. If you want people to help you, you'd be surprised the number of people who call me asking for a place for their loved one. And when I say, can you help? And they say, no, I thought you were a ministry. Well, somebody has to help the ministry or the ministry can't pay all of its bills. I mean, this is just the reality of doing ministry. Nobody wants to talk about it, but you know, the Bible says that a workman is worthy of his hire and not to muzzle the oxen that treads out the corn. So you want us to help your loved ones you need to help the ministries that help your loved ones. And by the way, this isn't just about Hope Prison Ministries. If you're in a community and you know there are ministries there and organizations that need your support and you have the resources to give, you need to give. Give to those ministries that help that help your community and especially if they're helping your loved ones. And by the way, don't just give while they're helping your loved ones or while they're helping you give after that because many times people will give to us while we're helping their loved ones but then they won't keep giving and so we've helped their loved ones and what they gave helped us help their loved ones but we can't help anybody else because they stopped giving so don't just give after that keep giving after they've helped you or your loved ones Family is important. Family is key. You want to appeal to the family first. So when I meet somebody on the streets, I'll say, where's your mom? Where's your dad? Where's your you know, relatives? Why aren't you with them? I want to find out about the family dynamic and what's going on. Many times in prison ministry, of course, countless people have um, have given, you know, thousands of dollars to their loved ones and seen it go to waste. And so they don't want to give anymore. And so you understand that sometimes they burn bridges, but family should definitely be charitable at home. My wife is here with me today, as you heard her talk earlier. And one of the things that I absolutely loved about her mom, her mom and dad were diligent with their money for many, many years. And they had a significant amount of money, relatively speaking. They weren't millionaires, but they had money when they retired. And one of the things that I loved about her mom was her mom was very diligent in giving to the whole family. She didn't give like, it wasn't like she was purposeful and like, okay, I'm going to give a hundred dollars to Barbara. And so I need to give a hundred dollars to her sisters. No, it was just whenever they had a need, whatever the need was, if she was able, she met it. Wouldn't you want to talk about that, Barb? about your mom and it was beautiful there was no favoritism because if my sister needed a cheerleading outfit well she would buy it my mother would buy it and the rest of us thought wow that's a lot of money but then when as he said when i needed something new shoes she would say let me get them for you one sister needed help you know with her household well, here, you've got children, let me help you. So it was always evenly distributed. But as he said, as the need arose, so we never felt like we were slighted or one got more than the other, which happens in families. And I want to also say, when my husband was talking about the atheists that we helped in our program, we have to remember we planted the seeds. He heard the gospel faithfully, and it could be years before that penetrates uh, his mind and his heart and God 
pulls him in and we may not even see it but we were the catalyst to set that in motion to uh hear the so that he could hear the gospel and the same here with ruth we don't see yet the promises but naomi her mother-in-law said just go and do this go and glean the fields so we don't know yet what will happen but that's where the faith and the hope come in we are doing our part we're planting the seeds amen InmateMentors.com. Help us help your loved one. We write letters, send books, accept collect calls, help those incarcerated plan and prepare for release, and create parole packages. To learn more, please visit InmateMentors.com. All right, so returning to the book of Ruth. So we talked about the fact that when you're considering biblical welfare, biblical charity, the first most important thing to think about is faith. Do these people know Christ? And if not, then the first step is evangelism. We want them to know Christ. We want them to understand the gospel. And sometimes that's going to mean being charitable and trying to help them and finding out whether or not it sticks. I mean, as my wife was just talking about, we plant the seeds. But, you know, Paul said we plant the seeds some water, some plant the seeds, some water, God gives the increase. God gives the increase. Many people are fond of saying you can lead a horse to water, you can't make them drink. I like to say you can lead people to water, but only God makes them drink. God gives them living water. We can just do what we can to offer it to people. So the first step is faith. They they need to be seeking Christ or want to know Christ. We need to be trying to introduce them to Christ. That is certainly a big part. And, you know, this is a very significant part about our biblical or, or excuse me, about our secular welfare system right now and the secular judicial system and all of these things. There's absolutely no emphasis on faith because of this whole uh, insane concept of separation of church and state. I read an article once that said the biggest fault of our founding fathers was that they were short-sighted. They never imagined that they would ne- that they would have need to talk about the need for scripture in the state because that's why they'd come over in the first place. So they never saw a need to to put those things into the constitution or all of those things. But you know, one of the things that's really important is that we want people to understand the gospel and we want them to be living right and doing the right thing so that their lives can be productive and and be on the right track. So faith is a huge significant part and if the if the judicial system like the food stamp system for example, I see people that get food stamps or they get this or they get that then they walk out in the parking lot they're in a brand new car. I mean we need to there needs to be accountability there needs to be a sense of how is the money being used who's receiving the money sometimes people give their money sell their food stamp cards for drugs i've seen that happen within the prison ministry times there are all kinds of things that go on and there needs to be accountability and there needs to be checks and balances in the judicial in the welfare system in the judicial system but faith is a big part of that we want to know that there no christ or that we're striving to introduce them to christ family is a big part of that family begin charity begins at home before start people start reaching in my pocket they need to be reaching in the pockets of family and relatives and other things and then finally the next step is uh, work. People need to be willing to work. So notice that Ruth said, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. But then beginning at verse three, 
It says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elamelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Ruth was a hard worker. Ruth deserved biblical charity because she was willing to work for that charity. Boaz was obviously a very wealthy man, and what you find in the Old Testament is that part of the biblical charity model was that the wealthy would have to leave sections of their field unharvested for the poor to be able to come and harvest from their fields. So they would work for their charity, so to speak. The charity was there, but they had to be willing to work to get it. Wow, what a difference from the modern welfare system. Listen, I'm just going to say this. The modern welfare system is not far removed from legalized slavery. It is a way of keeping the underprivileged underprivileged. It does not teach the value of work. It does not teach the value of increasing or improving your skills or abilities. It does not teach the uh, the value of of any of these wonderful concepts that we see found in this story in the book of Ruth. It certainly, again, does not teach the value of work. It does not reward work. I remember many, many years ago, I knew a lady who was on welfare, and she would tell me that as soon as she would start to earn the slightest bit of money, her checks would decrease. And so she was never, ever really allowed to turn the corner and to become what some might be called profitable. She was never, ever allowed to do that. So she was in this vicious cycle, and it was just a tremendous vicious cycle that just kept her there, so to speak. Now, listen, there are plenty of opportunities out there for people to turn their lives around, and people do it all the time. But the modern system of welfare that just continuously penalizes, if anything, work and doesn't reward. I know a young man who receives an SSI check, and he has for several years, and he would like to work. But if he earns more than, let's say, let's say his check is $700 a month, let's say he earns more than seven or $800 a month, he can't do that for long before they're going to cut out his check, take away his medical benefits, and the whole nine yards. Well, this young man is not, because of his learning disabilities, he will never be able to work and hold a job steady for the rest of his life that would support him. He really needs that income that he receives. He really needs the medical benefits that he receives from being on Social Security disability. But guess what? If he earns more than a certain amount, they're not going to let him get it. They're not going to let him keep getting it. They're going to take it from him. And so... His desire to work is penalized, and so now he's just like, why work? If I work, I lose everything, and I can't ever get ahead, so I might as well not work. So he's trapped in a vicious cycle of welfare. There are plenty of other examples like this 
ad nauseum. People who have developmental delays, people who have mental health issues, and they fall through the cracks, and the biblical, the, the secular welfare system is not set up to reward work or to reward the desire to work. We need welfare reform desperately in this country. We do not need bigger government, larger government, taking from the wealthy and giving to people who are not willing to work for it. We do not need those things. We need a strong system of the wealthy being able to help, but doing so only on the basis of, of faith, family, and work. Those are the biblical basis for welfare in this country, and that's what we need to see in this system. Thank you for listening to Not a Square Inch, the podcast of Hope Prison Ministries. Join us next time. To learn more, please visit us at notasquareinch.org.